Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest. This is Dr. Deepak Ravindran. He's a consultant pain and musculoskeletal specialist at Circle Rehabilitation. He's also lead consultant in pain medicine at the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading. His areas of special clinical expertise include treatment of neck and back pain, fibromyalgia, neuropathic pain, complex regional pain syndrome, and also cancer pain. He firmly believes pain disorders should be treated as early as possible with excellent quality rehabilitation and an appropriate use of multidisciplinary techniques. Today we go really in deep on fibromyalgia, its relationship to back pain, really, really up-to-date treatment methods, and lots and lots of takeaways which you can do to help yourself out at home if you're suffering from any of these conditions. So enjoy the episode, take care, and see you on the next one. And we are live. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave. Today, Dave and I are going to take a little turn from speaking specifically about back pain, and we're going to focus on a condition that's becoming more and more prevalent, or people may have heard more and more about it in the UK, and that is fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia is a pain condition that not only causes widespread pain throughout the body, including the back, but it appears to make other pain conditions worse, just like regular back pain or sciatica may appear worse if you have fibromyalgia. Many of these pain conditions have quite numerous clinical similarities or overlaps with fibromyalgia, and often this can be a stumbling block for healthcare professionals and GPs who are trying to get people the pain relief they need. So this is where today's guest comes in. Dr. Deepak Ravindran is a consultant in pain medicine. Here in the UK, he's a specialist not only in pain, but in chronic pain and fibromyalgia and many other chronic pain conditions. So today we're going to cover not just treatment and management of fibromyalgia, but also its relationship to chronic pain and why it makes other conditions feeling worse. Welcome Deepak. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Dave, for having me on your podcast here. Uh, It's been a pleasure to be part of this group of elite guests that you have on your podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And... uh, Yes, uh, my interest in fibromyalgia stems from the fact that uh, I've been a pain specialist for the last 10 years now, and I work as the NHS uh, clinical lead for the pain service in my hospital. So this is the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading. And uh, I also helped set up the Integrated Pain and Spinal Service, which is a national kind of award-winning Uh, service for pain patients, for fibromyalgia patients. And we did this in 2015. And it was an integrated community-wide service that made sure that patients received a holistic approach to pain management and fibromyalgia pain management right from the time that patients were either diagnosed or sometimes even before diagnosis of the condition we were able to offer that kind of approach. And uh, Fantastic. that made a big difference. And it's been looking after patients of that nature for the last 10 years that spurred my interest more specifically in fibromyalgia. Brilliant. So do you want to, as we've already mentioned it quite a few times, cover what exactly is fibromyalgia? So there'll be people out there who may have already been diagnosed and they may know exactly what it is. There may be people who have been told they might have it, and there may be people who have never even heard of it. So would you like to cover briefly what it is? I I think you've 
caught the point there, Rob, and uh, I still see patients who fall into all those three groups who, you know, who never heard of it. And fundamentally, fibromyalgia is a chronic widespread pain condition that is characterized by four cardinal features. So the main features that most of them have is sleep disturbance, cognitive meaning memory loss or concentration problems, extreme fatigue, and finally a pain that seems to be present throughout the body may start from one part, usually the back, but often becomes much more widespread. And it is this combination of four criteria that have to be present in most patients. And these, when they have been present for almost three months, and there is no other suggestion that there's any other condition going on, you know, their blood tests are normal, their inflammatory markers are normal, that constellation of signs and symptoms present in someone who otherwise has got no other blood abnormalities is enough to call it fibromyalgia. So I think what we learned it as, and I'm sure Dave will say the mm. same, is it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So once everything else has been ruled out, that's almost, I don't want to say what you're left with, but you know, that's what you know, is often the most likely diagnosis. It's a, I probably would have to say, yes, that has been what we've been always told. And that's what patients also end up taking that, yes, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. But uh, what the American College of Rheumatology, which puts out these criteria, they've been um, deliberately trying to say, and, and they're most recent criteria revision in 2016, they actually emphasize that it should not be a diagnosis of exclusion. If you can say that these patients have got three scales, so they have said there should be a widespread pain index, meaning that if patients have pain in four out of the five regions of the body, and they've divided the body into five regions, you've got your upper limb, which is your right side upper arm, then your left side upper arm and arm going to your hands, then your right side lower limb, your thigh and your bones going down to your feet, similarly on the left side, and then the middle of your spine, which is your neck, your upper back and your lower back. So if you've got four out of these five regions as painful, and then you've got something what they call as symptom severity, and the three symptoms you're looking at is, are you waking up unrefreshed? Do you have fatigue? And do you have a cognitive dysfunction, memory problem? So that's a score. And the last part is, in the last three months, have you had any tummy pain, abdominal pain? Is there headache and depression? And if these have been present for three months, it's not necessary that you need to have blood tests or anything, but okay. the combination of this widespread pain index, symptom severity scale is enough and you have got more than, score of more than nine in the symptom severity and a four to six in the pain index or a seven in the widespread pain index and a five in the symptom severity, that is enough to make a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. So they have tried their best to say, it's not a diagnosis of exclusion, but if you meet some patient who has got all these points, then you can say you probably have fibromyalgia. Now, let's do a couple of blood tests to make sure there's no infective process going on. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. And that sounds a lot better for patients then when you can sit down and, and meet an expert and he says, yes, it's this, rather than saying, 
I've ruled out everything else. It must be this. It doesn't give you a lot of confidence to that. that, that. Quite, yeah. It's a little bit of a reframe, but it's a necessary reframe yeah. for patients, I think. So that's changed quite recently then in terms of how it's been diagnosed. I mean, is that a fairly new new addition or is that is that the last year? Is that the last five years? It is. Yes, it is definitely the last five years. In fact, uh, I still have rheumatologists in many areas around me who make the diagnosis by just pressing on 11 out of 18 tender points. Yeah. Mm. That was the criteria from the 1990 American College of Rheumatology, Rheumatology yeah. diagnostic point. But as we know in medicine, Rob, um, things are very slow to change. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. the new criteria have come in 2010. They found and revised it in 2016. So what I've told you now with those three scales and numbers are from 2016, the revised criteria and in reality, it's only been three years that the American have brought it out. It's still taking its time to make its way around. And I think it's a lot more friendlier for patients. Yeah, yeah. this sounds a lot nicer as well, really, doesn't it? It's Than a good old jabbing for a diagnosis. Yes. Quite. yes. Yeah. Dave, I don't think we've introduced you yet, actually. It's the... Sorry, yeah, I've been yeah. lurking in the background <laughs> for this yeah. one, guys. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome, Dave, too, as well. He's, Hi, he's also yes, here. Yeah. Yeah. I've been transfixed. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Yes, yeah, yeah. So when you talk about widespread pain, are you referring to generalised aching? Is it more of a specific problem? I mean, will people say, I do have pain in my arm, I've got tennis elbow, or would it be a generalised ache down their entire arm, or is it very specific? It is often a very diffuse generalised ache that most patients will not be able to make sense of. They may not be able to say what it is uh, that started or triggered it off. And I think the closest I've had patients kind of describe it is if they have done a 10 or a 20K run, the kind of muscle soreness that's there in your body the next day. It's that achiness that's present in a very diffuse form. And that's the most common description. Mm. But I do have variations where patients would be able to say, I felt it like a back pain. It was like a sciatica that went down. It was there in the whole of my back, like a band across the waist and it went into my buttock and then it also radiated up towards my shoulder blades. Interesting. Yeah. So you, that's what, that's where the, the blurring of the lines comes then. And often, because you know, the reason we want to speak to you as well and why a lot of people will be interested is because there's a very fine or sorry, a very blurred line between patients who have got, you know, air quotes, regular back pain. And then they may also have fibromyalgia and then they aren't sure if their back pain is coming from their fibromyalgia or do they have normal back pain as well? And I think that's where patients can get quite confused. And someone might go to a GP and say, I've got back pain. And they may have a bulging disc. They may have a joint sprain. They may just have a bit of a muscle spasm. And the GP says, oh, you do have fibromyalgia. It's probably the fibromyalgia. And then they get pigeonholed straight away. And unpigeonholing them is a really, really important response. And understanding that, yes, this patient does have fibromyalgia. But they also have a bulging disc. And, you know, managing that patient, you know, for healthcare professionals and for GPs and people like yourself is a really important step to recognise. So I think that... It is. I, you're absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, in that, I find that when I speak to my patients, it is that first 15, 20 minutes where I just listen. And sometimes listening to them validates their entire story. To me, listening also gives me the ability to just un get a sense of what else has been happening. Because once you let them talk, they tell you so much more than just the back pain. 
And I think uh, our GP colleagues sometimes with the seven or 10 minute consultation times that they have do struggle to get time. I think a lot of times old school GPs, because they were spend time with their patients, they can build up, even if it is eight or 10 minutes, they've seen them over multiple eight yeah. to 10 minute consultations. Mm. They build up a picture. They know the family, they know the father, the mother, the child, and they know the intimate ones. These days, I do have a concern that when you sometimes don't see the same GP anymore, you then tend to see a different GP who then has to make a spot diagnosis based on what he or she sees on the computer from a previous colleague Mm -hmm. at that time and then have seven minutes with you to decide whether this is a flare-up of your fibro or is this a different back pain that needs further investigation or is it a simple back strain that needs physiotherapy and chiropractic and osteopathic, some kind of, you know, simple conservative therapy measures? Yeah, and I think that's where Dave and I are very lucky because we work in the private sector and I know you, you do a bit of work in the private sector obviously as well, is we have an hour initially to speak and chat to a patient. And Fantastic. That's a, I mean, we do have some treatment in that as well, but that's a, a good half an hour where we can sit and discuss and really dive in deep to a patient's history about mm-hmm. You know, is there a depressive episode? Have they had some big major life change? Have someone passed away recently? And then in seven minutes, people don't open up and it's very hard to get that. So I do feel really sorry for GPs who are having to... It is. And like that. I said, it's those kind of intricacies, the um, uh, the background knowledge of the family, of the situation, of the uh, everything surrounding the, the initial pain sensation um, that you're not necessarily going to put in the notes. That That's a... a, a not something that you're always going to write down as, a, as an initial um, finding, perhaps. It's not your classic sign and symptoms, no. um, but that's something that you build up with that, that patient over time. Um, yeah, very difficult. Difficult. Mm. I think, in a way, I'm lucky both in the NHS and in the private because in the NHS, in my department, I have access to physio and psychology colleagues, and we do a multidisciplinary assessment, which is a one-hour appointment. My own individual appointments are 30 to 45 minutes, both in the NHS and the private sector. Privately as well, I have a a circle fibromyalgia clinic, wherein, again, I have access to a psychology and physiotherapist who see the patient separately. So we are able to build up that, Mm. you know, story of the patient and understand them in their context, in their life circumstance, rather than just have to make a symptom-based diagnosis. Yeah, fantastic. What, right. a, dif- what a difference. Yeah. Oh, exactly. That multidisciplinary, appo- multi- multidisciplinary approach is, is vital. With Absolutely. This, yeah. So are there any other conditions which mimic fibromyalgia that, you know, w- when the patient presents with a classic, you know, what you've described as a very common presentation of fibromyalgia, are there, or what are the other things that will be running through your head thinking, actually, it could be this? Or what else are you looking for to make sure it's not or that it could be? Uh I think in in my book as well, I I think it is vital that we shouldn't be taking the point of view that once you've been diagnosed, everything is down to fibro. And I think that is a critical mistake you've highlighted, which a lot of uh, patients feel that they get pigeonholed into this is all fibro. Mm. Because as with any patient, they may have fibromyalgia because fundamentally fibromyalgia is a dysfunction of the nervous system so it's it's a problem that is due to a faulty processing within the software the middleman that connects the information from your structure in your body to your brain 
So that does not mean that you cannot have a problem with the actual structure. So one of the first differential diagnoses or what else can it be if it is not fibro or a flare of fibro is musculoskeletal abnormality. So it could be truly a structural problem that just hasn't been picked up. So I sometimes find that there has been a false label or a wrong label of fibromyalgia given to someone who's had an injury to a part of the body due to either sport or a fall or a trauma Mm. and they're just deconditioned. They just haven't been properly rehabilitated back and that over a period of two or three months, their pain because they've had, let's say, a neck or a back injury, they haven't wanted to do the exercise because they're afraid they then do work less, so the hips start to ache. And because the hips start to ache, they're probably their hamstrings or their quads don't function. So their knee then starts to ache a little bit. And then it starts to spread to the shoulder. So they've got two or three regions that are starting to be painful. And rather than do the proper scale that I spoke about, you know, the symptom severity and the widespread pain index, yeah. some practitioners would say, well, you're feeling tired and and you know, you've not done anything for three months, and your blood tests are normal, so it's probably fibromyalgia. But actually, it may just be a deconditioned, poorly rehabilitated musculoskeletal injury. Mm. Other times that need to be looked at and made sure that you don't put everything in the fibromyalgia box, as it were, is they could be having the start of some autoimmune condition. So, you know, it may be SLE or rheumatoid or something there. And I do find patients who have been given a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, but about a year later, they start to have something on their blood test, their rheumatoid factor is high, or one of their autoimmune factors has become high. So that's a possibility that must be kept in mind. Then endocrine abnormalities. By endocrine, I mean, it could be a thyroid problem. It could be a adrenal problem. So the adrenal gland is the one that makes uh, the cortisol. And so cortisol deficiency or lowering your stress hormone that can be up and down, this could be something that is being triggered by your brain or it could be something local at the adrenal level. All of these do need to be ruled out or at least explored and investigated before saying it is a fibromyalgia flare or fibromyalgia. Is is that something that would then be for um, uh, sort of continued through the process? So you mentioned uh, once someone's received that f- um, uh, fibro diagnosis, that then later on you might find that actually there's some rheumatoid uh, factor discrepancies um, on the blood testing or similar. Would that be a regular repeat test done down the line for someone just to check that these things aren't lurking in the background? Not really. I think within the NHS, it isn't. What happens usually, and the few patients, so let me first reassure your listeners that it's not that it's going to happen. So it doesn't mean that everybody who's now listening to your podcast and who's fibromyalgia should be going back to the GP and saying, well, test me now. I don't, I don't That's not what I'm saying, mm. but that must be something to be kept in mind because you may have a flare-up of your pain which your provider may feel it's fibromyalgia related but if that is accompanied by a swelling in your feet and that is accompanied by a change in your symptoms that is accompanied by some other systemic either lung or stomach problem Mm. then in that case it could call for an investigation and in that situation I have had a few patients wherein 
they have been called as fibromyalgia, but about six to eight months or 10 months down the line, their blood tests, because they've been investigated for swelling or something, gotcha. has shown a rheumatoid factor positive. And then when they get started on a biologic drug, you know, whatever they use for rheumatoid arthritis yeah. or lupus, that improves their fibromyalgia symptoms. It's yes. so they are not fatigued anymore. Their pain in multiple areas gets better. Their sleep may not change much, but as I go into my book, there are multiple other reasons for that. But it, that, that's what I mean by we must be aware. It does not, however, mean that they should have every six months a blood test. Continual testing. So it's more of an awareness of a, a change or um, an updating in uh, symptoms as, as the Absolutely. time goes on. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank yes. you for yeah. clarifying that, yeah. Dave. I think quite an important point. Yeah. So if you're at home, don't speed the other doc now. Yes. Yeah. 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 At least they don't need samples. They? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. they don't need any more samples. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Their own blood samples. Yes. Uh, quite. Yes. I brought you in blood, stool, and urine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so. Specifically with fibromyalgia then, so how common is it? Is this something which is prevalent or you know, what is its prevalence within our population? So the numbers vary. The American studies have said it's between 2 to 4% of their population. Wow. That's a reasonably high number. The most recent prevalence studies that came from one of our scholars in uh, Scotland, in Aberdeen, and his study showed that the prevalence of fibromyalgia is 5.4% of the population, which means if our last census is about 60 million is the expected uh, population in UK, uh, then you've got about 3 million fibromyalgics, about 5%. Chronic widespread pain, i.e. there might be other reasons which are not mm. clearly defined as fibro, but pain can be generally widespread. That kind of chronic widespread pain is almost 6 to 7 million of the population, which means... Wow. Wow. You know, if I have to put it in perspective for your listeners, there are probably more people with chronic widespread pain than all of your diabetics and your stroke survivors put together in the UK alone. That's incredible. Crikey. That's an awful lot of people. I know. Let's sink in. And this is for... <laughs> wow. And I'm sure people listening to this have never heard of this. No. You know, there'll be people, mm -hmm. many people who have never heard of fibromyalgia. You know, it's not a, a name you hear thrown around. And I know that it's being used more and more, but... Nine million, six million, you know, these numbers are... Those big are big stuff. numbers. And I think it is the difficulty because we are very aware of dementia. We are very aware of uh, cancer and stroke. Mm. But these numbers are much lower compared to this condition. And uh, uh, that has been one of my reasons for the interest is a lot more younger people are getting diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which means that you're having not just the young person struggling with the symptoms and not being economically productive. But it also means that these young people were looking to leave their home, kind of go out into the world, have a family for themselves, have a job for themselves. They have to now move back into their parents' home. And that means that their parents sometimes become carers. So you, it's a double whammy in terms of mm. economic productivity, self-esteem and job prospects. So it is, I think, a much bigger problem than what we know about the condition. Yeah. I, I had no idea how, how prevalent it was. Yeah. I might be skipping ahead here, but as we're on the subject, uh, Deepak, you mentioned that um, more and more young people are being diagnosed with the, uh, with the disorder. Is that because of a, a tightening up and, a, and an increase in awareness? Is, is that the better diagnostic um, uh, criteria we've got now? 
or is it becoming more prevalent from um, uh, uh, from a presentation point of view? What, what do you think is the answer? I think it's a mix of the first two. One is there is more awareness coming among GPs and practitioners now. I think in the last four or five years, mm. there has been an increased awareness of the condition. Therefore, the diagnosis has been offered more readily and probably quicker. Previously, it used to take somewhere between five to nine years from the start of symptoms before the diagnosis was made. Wow. Now it's probably a lot lesser because GPs are more aware on what to expect. The reason it's got me interested and, and you made a very pertinent point, Dave, is, is this younger group of people, it's right to ask the question, what is actually making it uh, more common? So is it that we're just diagnosing more people more frequently or labeling them? Mm. Or is it something else that's happening? And if I were to take you both back and your listeners back to the fundamental understanding that we've always thought and we've always been told in our medical education that fibromyalgia is to do something with the fibers or and the muscles. And, you know, when you look back at the history of it, you got it was called fibrositis because there was thought to some inflammation of the fibers because pain often was thought to be inflammatory. Yeah. Mm. And so when you look at the literature from the 30s to 60s to 70s, it's always been around inflammation in the muscles and ligaments. But the last 10, 15 years with the research and our understanding of the neuroscience of pain about the nervous system, about how the signals get processed and how the brain reacts to these signals we can now be very comfortable and very confident in saying that fibromyalgia is due to a processing problem within the central nervous system. So if we say that that is what it is, that it is a dysfunction of the nervous system, sensitization of the nervous system, then what is happening in a young person's life for the entire nervous system mm. to become dysfunctional? And... Uh, that's where my interest and my reading in the last three, four years, and I'm writing this book as well, has realized that there are three, probably two to three things that have to be added to this complexity. Yes, are there some structural changes that are influencing the nervous system? Mm. What I'm realizing probably is that the microbiome, the diet and the kind of diet that are children and the last 10-15 years of foodstuffs that has been made available, how is that changing the friendly bacteria that we've been living with, the microbiome? And there are some studies now that actually talk about the fact that a change in the microbiome occurs in fibromyalgia patients, which may be a trigger for the entire thing. Interesting. Wow. And the second concept is what's called chronic traumatic stress. So what else has been stressing the nervous system to make it more vulnerable? Mm. And that comes to my interest in understanding that the immune system and the nervous system are really tied very, very closely together. Mm. And they both can be profoundly affected by stress of any kind. So even if it is emotional stress or developmental stress that occurs in childhood, abuse, neglect, dysfunction in the family environment of any kind mm. can all result in a vulnerability within the system that by the time you come to 17, 18 or 20 years of age starts to manifest itself in the rest of the body. So wow. those are two things that now probably need to be added 
to our understanding of fibromyalgia. Yes. Is that something that's being researched currently? So is there lots of people out there who are looking more down this line or is this more hypothetical at this stage? I and mean, what's the approach to kind of including that? So 70% of fibromyalgia patients have irritable bowel syndrome. 70, wow. So that's a huge number there. And the most recent research, so it's actually a very well-established or a robust enough uh diagnosis or understanding or theory, shall we say, mm. that the reason for the irritable bowel is probably because there is a part of the intestine where some of the bacteria are growing much more than they should be. So there's actually a term called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, mm. where they say that there is that one layer thickness in the intestine is getting disrupted because of this overgrowth of bacteria. That is causing a little bit of inflammation, which a subclinical inflammation, which is causing a bit of a leaky gut, and that's causing the symptoms, the chemicals that are coming from this bacteria to come into your circulation. So a lot of the fatigue and the pain that you find in fibromyalgia could be related to this gut dysbiosis, the problem there. And the second thing that has also been proven is is the vagus nerve. So we always thought that the brain spoke to the gut through the vagus nerve. But now we realize that the vagus nerve is like a double, what do you call a highway that goes flows both ways. Dual carriageway. <laughs> Dual carriageway, yeah. 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 It's actually a super information highway that not only takes signals from the brain to the gut, but actually it takes information from the gut back to the brain so a lot of the chemicals that are being probably produced in the gut or being interpreted or picked up by the nervous system in the gut mm. communicates via the vagus directly to the brain. And they've actually found some evidence of small micro-inflammation in the buffers of the brain, the glial inflammation that cells call the glia, which are like your buffers in the brain cells, they get a bit inflamed. And so they think that a lot of mood changes that you see in fibromyalgia patients, depression or anxiety is probably related to something that starts in the gut. So that is almost a established theory now. And in fact, the most recent uh, British Journal of Anesthesia, which is like our flagship journal in the UK, is talking about two articles in the October edition, so just two months ago, wherein they've spoken about chronic pain and the sensitization, central sensitization of the nervous system. There is a huge influence of the microbiome and the gut as a implicating factor. So if you change your diet or if you look very closely at what you're eating and how you make a difference, you can potentially make a difference to the pain in fibromyalgia and other chronic pain conditions. I also read that 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 same journal, and the there was a similar article, same article about how it also has an impact on opioid receptors. So it can actually block the so that's why opioids have such a you know people take more and more of them, and they reduce their sensitivity. So they on high dose opioids and not having any 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 impact on from from these medications. Or, that- that's a perfect segue, Rob, because that's exactly the reason why in the UK now and probably in the US there has been that pushback against not prescribing too high a dose of opioids and to actually make sure that 
in primary care, your GP should not be prescribing more than 120 milligrams of morphine equivalent in a day. So mm. with opioids for your listeners, just to clarify, we tend to convert all painkiller medication in the opioid category. So whether it's your codeine, whether it's your tramadol, whether it's your morphine, your fentanyl, or your oxycodone, long tech or short tech, everything is converted back into a morphine currency. So everything is looked at in terms of morphine equivalence. Mm. And if you are on anything more than 120 milligrams of morphine equivalence, GPs are being strongly urged to say, contact your local pain unit, do not go more than 120. And if you have someone more than 120, that's exactly the point that you bring up. We found that high doses actually make things more difficult. And, then, and obviously then, as America are showing, the opioid crisis is getting... Well, quite, yes. Out of control, really, and it's absolutely we're having I some horrible, horrible times. We're not there. that bad as the Americans have been in terms of their, but I think the UK government as well as the pharmacist group here in the UK are making quite good progress in trying to educate most healthcare professionals of where the ceiling should be and why we want that ceiling. Mm. So that kind of then covers how it comes on, whether that's trauma and shock and stress and all sorts of things that will bring it on. Who does this typically happen to? So are there a subset of patients who are more prone to it? Or, you know, when you look at the data, who are who gets it? So the general studies seem to indicate that women are more prone to it. Mm. Uh, in fact, uh, people have often asked me, patients have asked me, well, what's the difference between chronic fatigue slash ME and fibromyalgia? And I think there has been research that has looked into that as well. And they have said actually that fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue are probably two sides of the same coin. The only difference is that in some research, you found that there's a substance uh, called substance P, which is more elevated in fibromyalgia patients. And substance P is supposed to be responsible for more pain. So that's why there's more pain in fibromyalgia patients, mm. but in chronic fatigue, there isn't. But otherwise, the symptoms that both these groups have are almost the same. There is very little uh, change in them. So it predominantly affects women. And uh, when they look further down into it, uh, there is this thought that is there possibly a familial uh, change? So sometimes I have noticed and in, in a local patient support group that I help look after there, uh, I have about five or six families where, where the daughter, the mother and the grandmother have all been diagnosed as having fibromyalgia. So there is a suggestion that twins or families, there is a higher risk of that fibromyalgia diagnosis being given. Now, that is where the research is going in is, is, is this still where is it coming from? And, and and I think it plays a part in saying uh, what are the various triggers for it. And it doesn't seem to be restricted to age. Previously, it was thought that it occurred in the middle-aged females. Now we see younger and younger people getting it. I have a percentage of men also getting it there. It lies predominantly in the younger age group. And then there is another part in the middle from around 30 to 60 years of age, that's another group. So those are my two major diagnostic groups where patients get this diagnosis. 
Uh, what else would probably useful more in terms of the understanding of the condition really what i probably would want to tell your listeners as well is our realization is it can start after three or four major events so from my point of view the triggers would be a physical trauma so if you have had a surgery or if you have had a road traffic accident so that has been one trigger then any emotional trauma so if they have been subjected to some significant bereavement or emotional shock or divorce or separation and this can include even childhood adversity of any kind that comes along in the younger age group i see that there so significant stress bullying all of these can be considered as an emotional stress by the developing nervous system or the immune system mm. then there is this concept of uh, probably uh the autoimmune condition so where the immune system itself is overactive for any reason then that persistent activation of the immune system can also cause a failure of it and i think there is that small percentage of people wherein these three don't seem to be there in the history but they have it and i think that's where we're looking at whether the the gut or the microbiome could be playing a part but overall the first three that i spoke about is 98% of the cases that i get to see in my clinic generally fall within the first three variations there and and uh, from there on it's important to piece the story i think coming back to where i spoke about listening to their story gives me the opportunity to kind of ask those questions to dig a little deeper because it's not just the first episode of back pain that gets fibromyalgia yeah. you look behind there are other things that have been happening as well failing other treatments and more more into that chronic category absolutely yeah. and the i know you mentioned trauma and surgery and bits is there a pattern of is it always huge surgeries i mean would someone have this after an achilles rupture you know is there a pattern of is it typically major surgery or major car accidents that put a lot more stresses i think usually it's the major car accidents or the surgeries that are big that requires maybe some icu or persistent hospitalization afterwards okay. so mm-hmm. that is a trend that i've noticed but where it has occurred after a relatively minor road traffic accident or maybe it's occurred after a relatively minor uh, problem i often and almost always in my patients i find that they have had other stressful life events going on you know either they have been in typically uh, difficult life circumstances or they have had other autoimmune conditions already happening or they're on other drugs for diabetes or some other condition there they may have had some subclinical infection that they are on antibiotics for and then that last surgery or that last minor road traffic accident it just becomes the tipping point you know the last straw that breaks the camel's yeah. back that sort of accumulative overload over time It rather is. than one large um happening it is yes. and I, yeah. i think if you look at it from if you approach it from a biomedical model of how we'd approach symptoms you know everything has to have one cause and one fix then treating fibromyalgia becomes very difficult but if you look upon it as well it is a cumulative stress and mm. so you've subjected the nervous system and the immune system to a persistent period of poor diet or poor sleep and lots of stress and other life events going on then it doesn't take too much even a minor back sprain or a neck sprain or some slight fall or a twist of the ankle could just be the last straw there mm. the ca- straw that broke the camel's back absolutely yeah so 
the golden question then, could you summarize what exactly the changes are for our listeners, for someone who has very little knowledge of the nervous system, the immune system? So what physically happens to the nerves, to the brain, to the spine that make them suffer from this widespread pain? You know, touching people shouldn't cause pain, but yet it does uh, in in, in these patients. So... All of this, I think the term that a lot of professionals in the field are using is is uh, what we call as uh, central sensitization. And I think the term that uh, an American group of researchers who have done a lot of work on understanding fibromyalgia, Daniel Claw and his team, they call it centralized pain. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, the just to complicate it further, the International Association for the Study of Pain, you know, that's our flagship organization, has actually said this should be called nociplastic pain. At the end of the day, what it means is that when you have a lot of signals that are traveling in the nervous system, I think that is something I'd like to probably uh, get across to your listeners as well is that we've always thought about pain as a indicator of something wrong and what i would want to introduce is the concept that pain is an alarm system so it is a signal that tells us that there is danger but it is up to the brain to decide how dangerous it is Mm. and in that sense when you have a fall it's not that your disc is bulged or it's not that your your knee cartilage is torn. It's that the signal that comes from there is not a pain signal. The signal that comes from there is a danger signal. How dangerous it is and whether it needs to be acted upon quickly or not is a decision that the brain makes. And the brain decides to make the decision based on its past experience because has it been in the same situation before? Mm. It Does it want to react in the same way? Does it need to instruct the muscles to tighten up and lock down everything? Does it want to change anything or make it run away? So, for example, from, from your own experience there with back pain, uh, a lot of times you may have a disc bulge that has happened there. So what gets produced from there is signals that are not what are called nociceptive signals. They're not pain signals. But those nociceptive signals travel in the nervous system. The nerves, the first set of signals reach the spinal cord. The spinal cord, the way I describe it, is it acts like a junction box. It's like an amplifier. So the spinal cord says, okay, let me send more of these signals up. It would send all of those signals to the brain. And there are parts of the brain which receive the signal, which are constantly on the lookout for where danger is coming. And it would say, well, you know what, I've got a whole lot of danger signals or signals coming from the back. And if it knows that the last time these signals happened, it really made the patient quite incapacitated, it would much rather say, you know what, I don't want to take the chance this time around, let's lock down the whole back because it might be better to protect it now. I don't think it's required, but I don't know whether it's required or not, let me just put it in lockdown. And that what causes a back spasm. So it may be the same disc bulge that in the first instance might have been the reason for pain. But continuing back pain, they may not have had any kind of change in their symptoms, Mm. but they would have had a back spasm that comes on for that reason. And what we've found then in the biology when, when the researchers have done the experiments 
they find that all along the pathway from where the nerves start from the back from where the spinal cord is and then all along the path the signals are getting amplified there are receptors that are amplifying these signals there are parts of the channel that are amplifying these entire signals and that means that the brain is much more receptive to saying you know what let's make everything sensitive let's lock everything down and that's where you probably are then getting your patients who are saying don't touch me there you know or even if a light air touches it's all very sensitive mm. because the nervous system is on high alert uh, the probably one way to clarify this for your listeners would be like i tell them it's like an alarm system i tell my patients is and and you can have a alarm system or a, or a system that turns on your lights and you can have it in the bottom of your garden and you have this button for setting how sensitive it should be you can have it sensitive enough such that only when a fox goes across your garden the lights come on but you can also have an alarm system that gets sensitive enough such that even a falling leaf or really strong gusts of wind can make the lights come on and love that i love that i'll be stealing that on monday morning i guess <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so that's very i mean the analogy i've used a lot about chronic pain is a fire alarm and a toaster and that's the analogy which again i've come across and i know dave's come across mm-hmm. and i think we've spoken about it on on a previous podcast is it's like having a fire alarm or you know, a smoke alarm that initially only goes off when there's fire and then it goes off a bit of smoke and then it goes off when the toaster gets too hot and it starts smoking and then it goes off with the steam from the shower and it be it learns to be more and more responsive Absolutely. and that's the, uh, the yeah the kind of approach that i've often used w- with patients mm. brilliant so then that brings us on a nice segue to back pain and obviously this is the back pain podcast so we can't really talk about anything without kind of segueing into back pain somehow i've said segue quite a lot of times but it's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great word segue um so we get a lot of patients, as we briefly touched on before, who have fibromyalgia and have then a secondary so-called normal back pain. I don't like the word normal, but they have a, a regular back spasm. Will they have worse pain because they have fibromyalgia? So will their you know, muscle spasm be then worse because they have this ramping up of the nervous system and that, that wind-up effect? Will they have that or can they be in the same level of pain will, or will they always be worse? Uh my tendency from what i've seen in my patients and what they have told me is that it does tend to get or feel worse mm. even though their scans would not show any change in their disc bulge or any change in their joints or any change in how their discs look dehydrated or narrowed uh, they do find that uh, there would be a much higher feeling of pain intensity they would score it as 8 or 9 out of 10 um and in that sense i would not like to say well as compared to another patient who has no fibromyalgia they may be able to score it as 5 out of 10 it's not necessarily true because i think each person is quite individual and different mm. but broadly i would agree with you i think a lot of fibromyalgia patients when they have a same kind of back spasm or a disc bulge are likely to have a much higher amplification of the system Um, it goes back to the same thing if it is fundamentally a dysfunction of the nervous system mm. and it is wired to be overprotective then the same bulge that comes along would make it much more protective yeah of course makes sense yes yes it's sort of a, an extension of that initial um problem yes yeah that, that their threshold to pain almost has been lowered so that what what might not cause me pain or, or for example you know will we'll set it off you know it 
you know, because they've already had 10 other episodes that their brain has learned that actually, yes, now this is a problem when it not necessarily is. Whereas in the likes of you or me or Dave, our brain says, actually, no, this is okay. It doesn't, it, we don't need to ramp everything up and lock all the muscles down around that area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the baseline vulnerability is higher. So it does mean that these patients will have, it does not mean that they don't have a structural problem. And I would say that when they have their first episode of back pain, we must look and investigate. And as I said, you know, do the necessary treatments investigation. But after that, when they have a system that is sensitive, then even twisting movements or simple movements will flare it up at that time. It's important that they are having the ability to reinforce the message. It's all right. My muscles are sensitive. And that's where I think a lot of... um, what I would say, not conservative therapies or complementary therapies, they're actually, they should become the mainstream therapies like, you know, what you do, chiropractic or osteopathic. Sometimes the ability to lay your hand on those patients and relax or stretch those tight muscles Mm. does make a difference. And I think uh, while there is variation and the evidence is never going to be robust enough to say it should be the first choice, a lot of people do find that it makes a difference. And this is something we talk about at length. In fact, we always manage to wheedle it around back to this point. Um, <laughs> it's the that initial pain, then creating a exercise or movement or activity, even aversion, yeah. uh, and creating that vicious cycle going down. So it's uh, yeah, the return back to a normal activity with the knowledge this is a uh, not an artificial, but it's a, an enhancement of that pain scale um within reason of course uh, uh but yeah getting back into normal activities knowing yes there might be uh an increase in your per um in the perceived pain you're in but actually it's not a, a major structural abnormality or, or something different going underneath often yes that doesn't equal harm quite it? yeah it yes does. It yeah. Does. and i think that's quite a very apt comparison really we need to get that message consistently across that hurt does not equal harm mm. My favorite example of that was someone I, I, I spoke to recently used and it was talking about being in a gym and you go to the gym and you experience pain. Yeah. So if you're in the middle of a really hard workout, you are in pain or a really hard run or a really hard swim, you're in pain, you're out of breath, your muscles are burning, but you, you're not in physical pain and you can understand it and you understand why you're in that pain. If you woke up at 2am in the middle of the night and experienced the same pain you did that you're in the middle of a workout or the middle of a heavy run with your heart rate and your breathing, you would call 999. And that's the understanding what pain is and when it should be there and when it shouldn't be there plays a big role in how you actually experience that and and whether it's an emergency or not. And your brain does a very similar thing. Absolutely. I I think you remind me of uh, one of my patients actually who exactly uh, did that, you know, and and having that knowledge makes a big difference. So she, when she came to see me mid-20s, she was uh, having a significant flare-up. She'd been given a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, but it had been coming on for two or three months prior to that. So in terms, because she came to see me privately, it was a quicker diagnosis by the GP. She'd been able to get the investigations much quicker. And she was almost bed-bound. She just wasn't doing any exercise. It had started off with a back spasm there. And once we got through to her okay that this is what it is and I then I got the help from my psychologist and my physiotherapist we created a bespoke kind of exercise and manipulation and sort of rehabilitation plan Mm. 
And then my psychologist was able to work through some of those fear aversion that you talked about, those strategies like CBT to overcome them, what to tell yourself when you're having the tight spasm coming on. And within about eight to 12 months, I think even by the sixth month, she was feeling confident enough to get up and start doing the exercise and be more comfortable with it. And in fact, just two, three months ago, she was able to push her body and get there to the point that she completed a half marathon. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, so, you know, it is possible and mm. movement, getting that help, getting that combination is important. Brilliant. So I know that you have a really good acronym for approach to treatment. Do you mind taking us through your acronym or your approach to treatment? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for, that's a very nice segue. No, I'm going to pitch oh, that, use that word. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I particularly, I embraced a very integrative approach. I mean, having come from a, an anesthetic and a pain specialist background wherein I was predominantly taught to be comfortable with giving medications and doing interventions. Um, my interest in fibromyalgia, and for that matter, now that we know a lot more about chronic pain itself, is that it's got to be an integrative approach. It's got to be an approach which embraces the fact that we need to find multiple ways to calm the nervous system and the immune system down. Mm. Sometimes a structure may be implicated. Sometimes somebody would be having a diabetes or a or a surgery-related problem. So yes, there are structure there. But I certainly am in favor of making sure that each person gets a little bit of various things, not just one drug, and expect that that one drug or one surgery will be a fix. So over time, I think with the kind of work that I've been doing, I've realized, well, if I can capture or put it all in in an easy-to-remember framework that's for me, and for my healthcare colleagues, and then for patients as well, mm. it just becomes much easier. And I've come across, or rather I decided that a good thing would be the mindset. It, 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 you change your mindset, but at the same time, if the mindset is the acronym, then it allows you to remember that every time you want to look after a flare-up of your pain. And so the M stands for any medications you may choose to have. So I'm not saying that all medications are useful. In fact, the the research says that only 30% of the pain-relieving medication work in 30% of the people, 30% of the time. That's not a lot of people. Wow. That's not a lot of people <laughs> yeah. at yes, all. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My math isn't that great. I'm trying to work out of what is that of 6 million, but it's not, not many. <laughs> no. So, so you have 70% of the people, it's not going to work. And mm-hmm. even in one person, it's going... 70% of his pain still needs something else other than medication and the drug itself is only 30% effective so we do need something else other than medications the next thing the i is the intervention so it could be whatever you choose so for example in fibromyalgia some patients may have such a tight muscle spasm that physiotherapy or osteopath or chiropractic may not help and in those instances, I've done some trigger point or tender point injections of local anesthetic. So that might make a difference. There are things like IV lignocaine infusions, which again, in a flare-up situation, can calm the nervous system down a bit there. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the interventions. The N is the neuroscience and stress prevention. I find that is a very critical an important part is just explaining, like I've spoken now to you about fibromyalgia, to understand that 
with that condition if the nervous system is behaving in a overprotective unnecessary or maladaptive fashion like a child that is behaving a little bit out of its way mm. you need to find a way to calm the nervous system down and that may be going back to various stress reduction strategies like breathing all of that stuff but it's Meditation. important to know exactly to important mm. know the nervous system to know what you can do the d is the diet so that's where i actually i've now developed a plan wherein i try to ask patients well what do you do have you tried some elimination diets have you looked at some aspects of what you're doing with processed foods or gluten or sugar because they all could be inflammatory and you want to reduce the immune system inflammation in the gut as much as possible the s is for the sleep so sleep again is hugely important because in fact in the medical legal setting they tend to believe that sleep disturbances occur much earlier than any other symptom in fibromyalgia so they in fact in the court setting they have evidence and a few studies to show that sometimes sleep disturbances start 2 to 3 years earlier than the actual diagnosis itself and the symptoms there because uh, i can go into that a little bit later but rest of the framework e is the exercise mm. which is i think as you guys probably do that is a massively vital and hugely important part and we now have mri proven evidence that the more exercise you do the more regular routine that you do even if it's 30 minutes a day and you divide it in the day you actually build new nerves and new neural networks and new pathways so exercise is massively important and the last is t but actually to me it is an important t is therapies of mind and body and that includes everything can be yoga can be tai chi can be meditation can be felt and cry can be chiropractic can be osteopathic and it changes because some people will respond very well to chiropractic some people would say it made it worse some people cannot just sit down and be mindful or do mindfulness others can do a yoga but then don't want to do anything different and i think we need to go to where the patient is start with what they are comfortable with because if you've got a nervous system that's already agitated you can't go and say oh you must do yoga and you must do yoga half an hour because that's what the nhs provides mm. we actually should be able to say well what are you comfortable with what is your nervous system capable of liking and being calm with let's use that and then slowly take them from there on to find another part and that is where with our present way the mindset framework works well so i encourage each patient to say you know what okay i'll give you a drug i'll give you a medicine fine if that's what you've come to the pain clinic for i'll give you a medicine but have you thought about this have you thought about that can you think about this let me signpost you to a couple of resources on sleep let me do a couple of exercises let's go to muscle relaxation you have a favorite osteopath or a chiropractor you haven't gone before go back there and see whether you can engage with them it is mm. bringing that entire set of strategies to each episode of pain rather than saying you know what i'll give you a tablet i'll see you in three months that's Done. not yeah, going to work mindset that's fantastic so just to recap those mindset was medication intervention neuroscience of the learning and understanding diet sleep exercise and therapy that's brilliant i love that and that you came up with that yourself yes that's fantastic that's really good love it brilliant. so if someone has just had a recent diagnosis are there things which we've spoken about things which they can do and the whole mindset approach and and what you do 
Are there things that will make it worse? So it's just things, whether it's dietary or smoking or anything that will, that you'll tell them straight away, you have to cut this out. So the ones that I definitely say cut it out is around the the diet part. That's at least within my ability and knowledge to actually say processed foods of any kind is a definite no. Mm. Uh, Sugar-laden stuff, that is anything that you can, if it has got and you pick up something from the supermarket and it's got five or more stuff in, yeah. <laughs> then that is probably processed. Or words you can't pronounce. Is the other, exactly, yes. yeah. what you can't pronounce. And I, and I, I think with patients as well, I've realized that if you tell them something that's a no, it's difficult. You need to, these patients are in pain, they're struggling. So you do need to break it down and be a bit more specific. So I say, okay, what I want you to do is for six weeks, do what's an elimination diet. Right. You don't have to do anything there, but just for a defined period, four to six weeks, reduce all your sugar, reduce some of your starchy stuff there, make sure you can take away completely all the processed food, do this for six weeks, and then you can restart back. Yeah. You want to cut out gluten, maybe give gluten a try as well and cut it out. And that thing is a good start there. Yeah. Sleep, I give them sleep hygiene. So again, explore simple things. So 90 minutes, and I like the advice from Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. I think he's the, the doctor yeah. in the house guy, and uh, I listen to his podcast as well, quite the, useful there. Does he do the doctor's kitchen? Uh, no, that, that is, I think I forget his name. I forget that. No, no, he's not the doctor's kitchen. He's the writer of the the stress solution and uh, the four pillar plan. Yes. It's know. quite, yes. he's again, he's aimed it very nicely for patients. And he has this thing where he talks about sleep, where he says 90 minutes before bedtime, all electronic equipment should be, yeah. you know, not Off. there. Mm. Uh, and then no coffee after 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Avoid alcohol after a certain period of time. And can you just cut down on any kind of chocolates or that kind of processed foods closer okay. there? Make sure there's a two-hour gap between your meal to going to bed. Mm. Don't do exercise two hours before going to bed. Okay. So these are all simple, clear instructions which I give to patients because then that makes it easy for them to do. If you just, if I just say, oh, you should look at sleep hygiene and go off to resource, <laughs> I've often found you do need to help the patients. You need to give it a little bit more, break it down for them, give them clear instructions that they can do, they can um, comply and understand with. If you make it too broad and non-specific, then that again is confusing. You know, as I was telling you before I started, I... I, if I wanted to learn a skill, if I just went on YouTube and read about it, there's so much information there mm. or so much on Google that I probably will not know where to start. It's almost like an analysis paralysis. Yeah. And I would much rather be told four or five simple things that I could probably do, something that doesn't change too much. And uh, that's a third part of the exercise. I tried to find out, you know what, what are you doing right now? If, if you've never exercised before, telling them to go to the gym for one hour, ain't going to work. But I'd much rather find out, can you do 10 minutes? Can you do five yeah. minutes? You know, what do you like? Can you walk mm. or or can you go something? Can you, when you drop your kids off to school, can you do an extra five, 10 minutes? Yeah. Simple things and then build it up from there. So it's not, it sounds, yeah, so it's not one set thing for everything, so for, for, for everyone. So that could be five minutes of exercise for one person. For another one, as you said, it could be running a half marathon. It's that adaptable to the patient in front of you. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It is. You've got to calm the nervous system down. So I'd much rather go 
at what level the patient feels comfortable with rather than frightening them anymore and saying oh you've got to do this this and this and then i'll see you in 3 months they mm. might find that they don't do anything hard to do so is there any exercise that you would advise against in terms of i mean obviously if the patient has done it before so if you have a patient who is say an olympic athlete or uh, an olympic weightlifter or an ironman triathlete and they're presenting now with new symptoms which and they want to get back to it would you advise them against it or you know are there more things which would be more aggravational neuroscience research would actually say that i wouldn't if they have been sufficiently deconditioned i.e. if they have not done their level of training for let's say more than 4 to 6 weeks then there is going to be that level of deconditioning so i wouldn't want them to go back to that same level of uh, disability that they have you know but there is no reason why you can't go back to that that can be an aspiration and i say okay let's start at some point can you work with your favorite physio or osteopath or chiropractor on what is the regime to be done it should be a stepped regime that goes back to where you need to be and it should be something that is achievable and i think a lot of times in business we use this smart goals you know specific yeah. measurable achievable mm. realistic i focus on the realistic part a lot i i try to temper their realism a little bit while not making it too you know oh no that's not just possible at all i probably say your nervous system is is in a really fragile state but it doesn't mean it can't cope with it what you need is what are the factors that have led to this flare up you know if you're sitting in front of me that means you've had a problem that has sufficiently made you disabled so let's see what i can do to help you and have you got all the other systems in place your stress has been managed your family environment is good your support systems are good your coach is all right your your love near and dear ones are in support of you then let's start at the baseline and then let's put a plan 3 to 6 months 9 months and you get back to where you need to be brilliant this i like that a lot so it's no absolutely and yeah. it has got to be personalized to them yeah. really so i yeah. tend to and i think you know for a lot of your listeners if they are not into the athletes and triathlons and if they are Uh, average joe and who are just trying to do their daily life and look after their kids um it's vitally important they may have to give the preference to their kids and do the kids yeah. activities those are the inescapables yeah. um and the unavoidables yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it might be that that is their first preference you know telling those people to get to the gym every hour is very tricky not realistic no what no. i tend to do is what can you do for self care can you carve a half an hour out after the kids have gone to bed or maybe during the day when they're in school wherein you can do just something a little bit for yourself that just allows your nervous system to say i feel safe where yeah. is safety i like that where mm. is safe oh where is safe that's a good question oh i like that yeah so there's not one uh, so there's not sort of a go to specific you know uh, needs to be uh weighted exercise or it needs to be more cardiovascular repetitive um it is just any exercise to to allow the nervous system to uh to sort of get happy with moving again yeah movement mm. is motion so something yeah. that they can start doing that allows those uh fundamentally i think the way if your nervous system is dysfunctional mm. then it ramps up the stress response and in our traditional mammalian system we've got you know you we all talk about the fight and flight but fully spoken it's it's a 3f's it's fight flight or freeze mm. and we often want to either fight or fly 
and freeze is a response that can happen in an extreme amount of stress as well where you just completely freeze out you see the rabbit in the headlights what mammals have the ability is that when you get that kind of stress response where everything has gone to your muscle you got stressed your nervous system has instructed your cortisol to fire up and you want to protect yourself you either fight and you run away from the danger or you dead anyway so it doesn't matter <laughs> you either you fly away you you know you you freeze and that can sometimes put away an attacker in the savanna because you then don't have to get killed at all you might just still survive mm. but what mammals have is once that stress response is done you might have seen they can shake it off they can just shiver they can shake it off or they can run away mm. and they ensure that the adrenaline and the cortisol that is built up in their muscle is actually taken off completely is just completely dissipated yeah humans do not have that we have that fight or flight we have that ramping up of the nervous system it tightens it up but then if we don't do any movement then that is just stored in your system the body keeps the score that just makes the muscle spasm tighter and that's why i tell patients you know just try to do some exercise something that you're comfortable with even if that means walking at a slightly fast pace for 5 minutes around the block in the morning do it three times maybe every hour just get up and walk around your room from the bedroom to the living room do it a little bit faster but just get some movement in place that's a first start for someone who is struggling with a significant flare from then on you know once that comfort comes in people accelerate much quicker so yes the half marathon patient is 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 one extreme there mm. but a lot of people are able to come to 5k's and 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 gym for one hour within 3 to 6 months of just understanding that bit fantastic and there must be sort of a, a scale of escalation as well once you've done the 5k they they probably um uh, um are going to improve on a much faster scale comparative when they first start that first walking of 1k might have seen insurmountable um and then you get that that improvement sort of building up as you go it is yeah. absolutely right yeah. so then moving on to we've spoken about the treatment and the last point i think we'll cover today is how effective is that treatment so how many of these people will be completely pain free how many people will have moderate pain you know in in terms of their prognosis once the kind of the diagnostic label has come through there that is where the change comes so i have a number of fibromyalgia patients when they have put in these systems in place they are able to go back to a high level of function including coming off many of their medication going back to their job what they do know is that as long as they do those activities there they are able to be on top of their pain their pain is very manageable or hardly noticeable but if they do have flare ups or if they have some change in their routine or something else as a stressor comes along then i do find that they start to experience pain so mm. i would probably hesitate to say that you can become completely pain free what this condition calls for is the ability to modify your lifestyle incorporate a lot of healthy practices and then have a plan for doing those healthy practices on a regular basis when things don't go right they should have a toolkit to incorporate into their life so i think complete cure from fibromyalgia um i've had a couple of patients say that to me but on reflection i must say that maybe a year later 
they've had another stressful episode that just fires up the nervous system and then i've seen them because they felt it's it's yeah. something's not right and they mm. want a slight change in their medications or they think whether they can get an extra top up of physiotherapy or psychological support or chiropractic advice mm. and that happens so rather than treatment being a, it's not a one time thing it's it's a, a continuous effort to modulate both sides of that equation really to, to kind of even that out yes it is and yeah. i have patients who find that if they do once a month massage and or they go for a once a month uh, osteopath or chiropractic session mm. and then they do for every two weeks they go for a swimming thing they are able to keep on top of their symptoms they have reduced their medications often most patients what they want is they want something that they can include in their lifestyle and they don't want to be on drugs that can potentially make them drowsy yeah. so mm. what they do is they have a set of strategies that may involve various complementary therapies breathing meditation mindfulness try to be on as minimal drugs as possible you know have the occasional codeine or tramadol or paracetamol or naproxen for what they need mm. but they want to have a, a functional life and i think that's something that's very achievable in fibromyalgia that i have a fair number of patients who can reach that point um the patients that i have probably the 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 greatest challenges for both for themselves and for me is where they have had a significant amount of ongoing stress you know if their life stresses haven't changed mm. if they're a single mom if they have kids who have uh needs and special needs if they have uh single parents really single moms or single parents there mm. and then if there is a significant amount of mental health overlap you know they've got ongoing depression that isn't changing if they have got ongoing other strong drugs there those are the ones wherein putting in all these techniques results in some improvement but because of their other conditions they're not able to keep those strategies going on yes yes that sort of interferes and then that that skews the the equation at the end of the day it yeah. is it is yeah brilliant so i think that covers most of the topics that we had surrounding fibromyalgia we did have a couple of questions which we posted about in in our facebook group the the, the back pain and sciatica support group uk and also had a look on a couple of fibromyalgia groups as well. A lot of them were things that we have covered um, regarding back pain and will it be worse and things we've spoken about. Touching on that, people have said that when they've had sciatica or they've had structural back pain, it's also made their other symptoms worse. Is that possible for them not just to increase their widespread pain, but to increase their fibrofog, their fatigue, their tiredness? Is that common as well, you find? it is uh, it's quite common there that when they have had a bad episode of back pain or neck pain there it tends to make their other symptoms worse and it tends to then worsen the fibro fog especially the the cloudiness the concentration uh, the reason why it happens and i i think the evidence is still coming through with it is once you've got that sensitized nervous system it may be just a muscle sprain or a muscle strain it may be a disc which is releasing a small amount of chemicals that has irritated the nerves and worsened the sciatica there what that means is that the nervous system has re- received these signals the brain has said you know what the last time this happened i'm going to just put everything into lockdown tighten it all up and i find that when the muscles go into spasm uh, i tend to explain to my patients those nerves that come out from the middle of your spine they don't go in separate trunking cables themselves they go between the same muscles that are going into spasm so when you get those sciatica like symptoms 
It may be because the disc is releasing chemicals and that could be a reason for the sciatica, but it could just as well be that the muscles are being are dynamically pinching those nerves as they are passing through them and that causes the sciatica-like symptoms. So the focus should be that, yes, you could try some manipulation or some stretching or some techniques to calm the muscles down, but when those signals then climb up to the brain, the brain's going to be so focused on dealing with what it considers as a survival response. And if you think about it, when you are in survival mode, your blood flow to your stomach or intestine is going to be reduced. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your nutrition is going to be down. Sleep is really not that essential because surviving is more, as far as the brain is concerned, survival is what it's out for. So sleep is not high on its priority. Um, muscles have all got to be tied because they've got to either run away or fight for it. So that's all its focus is on. And if that's the focus entirely, then it's only during sleep that the brain can uh, archive its memories. It can look at the events during the day and convert it into in the right place. So when it doesn't do all that, when your sleep is gone, you get one of the cardinal symptoms. So you get further sleep problem. And if you're not able to convert all your memories there, everything stays as fragments, so it all gets confused. So you then have concentration problems, you've got memory issues coming up. And if your muscles are on tight, all alert all the time, you just aren't focusing on anything else and the fatigue sets in on the muscles at a chemical level. That's just the buildup of whether you want to call it lactic acid or whatever there. So that causes the fatigue. So all of those three cardinal symptoms Mm. starts to get worse. Your mood changes, not enough blood flow goes to the intestine. So if your bacterial population there is changed, then your depression starts to come along, your tummy pain starts to get worse. So you can see that all the other symptoms will just be a knock-on effect from a back spasm. Yeah, wow. Amazing. So I think that just about wraps up today's episode. We've gone in deep on fibromyalgia. So for anyone that is suffering, today's been a fantastic resource for any tips, nuggets of information that people are looking for. Is there anything else which you had that you would like to add? Uh, no, I think it's been uh, really good to uh, be on this podcast. Thank mm-hmm. you, Rob and Dave, for the opportunity to talk Thank to your you. listeners about what I think is a very prevalent condition that can be managed so much better and so much quicker and gives patients a lot of control rather than sort of waiting for your GP or a healthcare provider to get their magic wand out. So I think there's so much they can do and probably there would be further resources. Hopefully my I'm writing a book which kind of updates all the information in the last five, 10 years and uh, it's called Fibro Fog and it's probably coming out in the next three, four months. So Brilliant. have a look out. But locally there are lots of resources and there are some good programs. So I don't know for some of your listeners who might be there in the Gloucester and Southwest side, I'm aware that the the I think it was Plymouth. I uh, don't know how far away from Gloucester that is there. Along about three hours. About three quite hours. A while. <laughs> There's a very good I think a body reprogramming workshop which which runs mm-hmm. the same thing but for fibromyalgia patients. It's on the NHS. So there are resources like this. It's a little bit uh, disjointed and fragmented across the NHS. Mm. But hopefully, I think I'm going to see if I can collate and bring all those resources together. And I would encourage your listeners to to explore and understand a lot more about their body and and maybe this podcast would be the first step for them to do that. Mm. Fantastic. 
So you mentioned that. Are there any other key resources that people should turn to? Is there a fibromyalgia website or so the national fibromyalgia association for the uk itself has got some very good resources there's another website which i'd like to signpost which is called living well with pain so that that's not for fibromyalgia it's for chronic pain itself but it's got some really good stories there is a a patient story there a lady called uh, louise who is uh, who talks about her journey of coming off strong drugs. She's had fibromyalgia for more than 10-15 years, was on really high-dose opioids, and she lives around the Torbay side, and she talks about in great detail on how she's managed to come off it, how she's used a simple exercise like walking and hiking to make her pain significantly less. She has pain, but she knows now how to manage them using a variety of techniques. So that's a very good resource in terms of going there. The uh, Faculty of Pain Medicine, which is the Royal College of Anesthetists, has got a website called Opioids Aware, which if you had any questions about your drugs but were afraid to ask or didn't have time to ask your GP, then that's Mm. a really good resource to go for. And probably the last one or one of the ones, there might be others which I've forgotten, but is Pete Moore, his pain toolkit. So he's an expert patient himself who's done a huge amount of... uh, work in getting this information on self-management. And I think self-management is a key strategy as part of this. You know, while I may do the mindset and I can give all this, there's a huge amount of self-management that patients can do. And I think his website gives a lot of those strategies as well. Mm. Yes, it's the pain toolkit. I think we've possibly mentioned him before, but he's a really, really good resource for patients. I've referred a lot of patients to the website who are suffering. Brilliant. So where can people find out more about you in case they were interested? Is it? Do you have a website? Is it the best place to yes. email you? What's so, the- so me and my partners, we have a sort of private website called the BerkshirePainClinic.co.uk and uh, I can be emailed at admin at BerkshirePainClinic.co.uk. I have, I'm active on Twitter as well and uh, those would be probably the three main avenues. On the NHS, for your listeners there, on the NHS, your GP could refer to to me at the Royal Berkshire Hospital. Mm. Fantastic. In Reading in Berkshire. Amazing. Anything else from you, Dave? No. Um it, it's nice to to dive into that. I mean we've been about one hour one hour twenty minutes now and I feel like we could probably do another one hour twenty yeah. very happily. <laughs> um but it, it would be sort of a uh, just for us really <laughs> um it's nice to hear a the the treatment and the management is not at all passive. It is very patient active it's very um a very much a self-management program alongside the um uh, the medication and, and advice from uh from the healthcare pra- uh, professionals um which for me i think is a fantastic thing it puts uh, for better or for worse but for me i think it's better it puts the emphasis onto the patient it can be helped it's not sit and wait for a new pill sit and wait for for this it, it can be adapted and it can be um uh changed and challenged certainly by by um uh by the sufferer which is fantastic i think that's brilliant to see yeah uh, if our listeners get that day, that'll be fantastic no? yeah. mm. brilliant well thank you very much and uh, for everyone out there take care and have a great day thank you bye-bye thank bye. you bye